This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. BC travelers raring to go. Oh, I can't wait. You know, I have a cottage in the interior. How BC ferries are filling up and step two is a lifeboat for many tourism operators. Why the workplace might never be the same. A new poll shows the pull of working remotely. And 10 years after the Stanley Cup riot. I wouldn't say that it turned on a dime. I'd say it erupted on a dime. Vancouver police reflect on what went wrong. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Now that BC's COVID circuit breaker and provincial travel restrictions have ended, it seems many people are eager to make up for lost time. Tourism operators say they're seeing a spike in bookings, but wonder when visitors from the rest of the world will be able to return. When a ferry ride is more than just a ferry ride, it's a sigh of relief. It's been tough. I'm looking forward to the end. Most British Columbians have been waiting a long time for this and are all aboard when it comes to step two. An encouragement now for people to travel across the province. Oh, I can't wait. You know, I have a cottage in the interior. It's good. I can't wait for things to just feel normal again. Steady traffic all day Tuesday, but nothing compares to the web traffic on Monday when the BC Ferries site actually crashed because more than 2,000 people tried to book reservations at the same time when the Step 2 announcement was made. We are planning on moving to our usual summer schedule that you would have seen pre-COVID, uh, and that'll happen around June 25th. More travellers means more money spent. Opening BC up for within-province travel is the lifeboat many operators have been looking for. There just aren't that many visitors yet here to, to try to fill the boats. We, uh, we are again running at, at less than 20% capacity. But BC visits alone will be far from enough to avoid sinking. Victoria and Metro Vancouver specifically rely on international visits, especially from the United States. And that's not possible with a closed international border. An American visitor will spend almost three times as much as a Canadian, simply because they're more apt to spend. But that could soon change. The Western Premiers met Tuesday, border reopening on the agenda. And all Premiers will meet with the Prime Minister Thursday to discuss when the U.S.-Canada land border may open. I want to see a clear plan from the federal government on how they're going to monitor uh, who's coming, how they're coming. Alberta's position is that we should facilitate a safe reopening of the U.S. border um, as soon as, as we reasonably can. Alberta targeting as soon as July. British Columbia leaning for a little later than that. But ultimately, when this now-closed border reopens... That will be up to Ottawa. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's take a look at the latest COVID-19 numbers for B.C. We have 108 new cases, bringing our provincial total to 146,561, with nearly 1,500 of those cases currently active. 139 people are in hospital, 39 of them in ICU. 
Thankfully, no new deaths to report. Keith Balbury joins us now with more on the vaccination rates, especially among young people in B.C., mm-hmm. and how that's made a difference here in comparison with the U.K., yeah, so it's becoming very more, much more relevant about the vaccination rates for people under 30 because of what's happening in the UK. The Delta variant now dominant virus in the UK, and it's in, infecting young people uh, by the most numbers of people under the age of 30 because those people have more contacts and because they've not been vaccinated. Not the same case here in BC. Yes, uh, the more people under the age of 30 have the virus, but look, look at the vaccination rates. We've got 64% vaccinated here, just 24% vaccinated in the UK a big reason why so many young people are getting sick there. We caught up with UBC microbiologist Sally Otto, who points out again, young people are the key to uh, vaccinating them, are the key to fighting this variant out. What we're seeing with Delta in the UK is that it's the younger people that are really susceptible because they haven't been vaccinated. So the more we can protect our, our, our younger adults and our, our youth with vaccines, the less able Delta will be to kind of take hold in the province. So in B.C., the Delta variant has gone from 3% of the cases in late May to about 9% last week. We'll get an update on Friday. Hopefully that percentage does not increase. The good news is it has not translated into more daily cases or more hospitalizations. Quite the opposite of what's happening in the U.K. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. It's not just the resumption of travel that has British Columbians excited. As Grace Key reports, even though it's not quite business as usual, restaurants, bars, movie theaters and gyms are all very happy to be welcoming customers back. The doors are opening at Vancouver's Rio Theatre. They're putting on the shine and pulling back the curtains, getting ready to welcome back moviegoers after a long pandemic shutdown. I am so excited. I would be jumping up and down doing a Tom Cruise on the on the seats right now if I could. Um, no, we this it, I cannot believe it's been this long for us to be able to play movies. We haven't been able to play them since November. It's part of the province's restart plan as more restrictions are being lifted. People are eager to sink back into the seats. With limited capacity, theaters have sold out shows, including the Rio, starting with two classics that sold out in just a couple of days. Tonight, I'm going to be in one of these seats watching The Big Lebowski. Even though I've seen it 10 times, it makes me laugh every time. And I just can't wait to watch it with the first moviegoers you know, in a very long time at the Rio. Only the finest. Looking for late night drinks after the movie? Well, liquor can now be sold until midnight. The Kiefer Bar in Chinatown opened the patio next door during the pandemic. It'll be easing into the expanded hours, but its popular mini golf, considered an indoor activity, is now back up and running. Our mini putt's been shut for about four months now, and uh, it's an email a day about the golf. And people come in and they're, they're upset that it's not open. We get bad reviews because it's not open. It's like, well, it's not our fault, man. The wheels are going to be spinning again for group classes at Method Cycling. Indoor high and low intensity group classes are allowed with reduced capacity. Method Cycling will ease in with two classes on Wednesday at its Kitsilano location. We've been closed for eight, nine months. We don't need a full schedule and, and we really want to make sure that the clients feel comfortable and feel safe and we've followed all the protocols and all the procedures along the way and so why mess it up now? Easing in seems to be the theme with no one wanting to mess things up as even more restrictions will be lifted July 1st. Grace Key, Global News.
The province is bringing back a modified version of the free day pass program at busy BC parks this summer. Starting June 22nd, hikers will need to book a pass to access popular trails at Mount Robson, Stuamas Chief, Garibaldi, Golden Ears and Joffrey Lakes Parks. Bookings can be made online starting at 7 a.m. the day prior to visiting the park. Minors will not need a pass if accompanied by an adult. The system was implemented last year in response to the pandemic, but parks officials say it actually worked well to control overcrowding at popular hiking trails. Visitors to Cyprus and Seymour Parks will not need a pass this year. Play hard, work hard. And here's another sign. The workplace and a good part of the economy will be permanently altered by the pandemic. A new survey indicates once again that for many employees, working from home is here to stay. But as Imadagahi reports, some say predictions of the demise of the downtown office culture are premature. So you'll find account executives and creative executives all mixed in together. Office life has evolved over the years. We uh, have some new people coming in and we need all the space we can get. But there's no space. But never so dramatically and over such short amount of time. The pandemic shifting 44% of Canadians to working from home. And now this discovery. We believe that uh, a lot of Canadians will continue to work from home when this pandemic is over. BDC Bank surveyed 700 small and medium-sized businesses and found 74% of those companies plan to offer their employees remote work. More than half of workers want to stay at their home office, and the ability to work from home now factors in the decision half of the time someone moves in this country. So why are new office towers still popping up downtown Vancouver? That survey surprises me a little bit, and maybe a big percentage of those people who were at work couldn't answer it. Although this building on West Hastings and this one on Burrard are near completion with no tenants yet, Mark Chambers is confident that will change in the final stages of BC's restart plan and after the border is back open. There's a huge amount of pent-up demand and we think it's going to be an incredibly busy finish to, to 2021. The need for human contact, the need for that kind of creative bumping of ideas is going to really come back and I think that that's the, the, the death of the office building may be greatly exaggerated at this point. Of course, there are those who never moved out of their office. All the stuff we did is all in the office. Yeah. You don't need to take the whole the hardware and software back to home. And this man who's searching for an office job. Because uh, we can learn more things from office and from colleagues. But freedom of remote working is still a big sell. I'm working right now, walking. <laughs> and it's likely when and if people return back to their old desks, they'll find everything looks different there too. Amadagahi, Global News. Long waits for ambulances that never come. And the problem might get even worse in rural communities. The big change coming that could put your emergency on hold. That's next on the News Hour. Ten years. Ten years after the embarrassment of the Stanley Cup riot, reflecting on the chaos that still causes heartache for a lot of people, coming up on the News Hour. And in the Okanagan, a little cat recovering after being tossed from a car window. How you can help later. 
Right now, though, B.C. paramedics are warning that major changes to ambulance service in B.C. could result in much longer waits in some communities. As Aaron MacArthur reports, they say the time it takes to dispatch an ambulance could go from 90 seconds to 20 minutes. For B.C. paramedics, every second counts. And now in Revelstoke, there are concerns those seconds could add up to major delays. There are fears changes to paramedic staffing levels might add as much as 15 or 20 minutes to response times. That could mean life or death. Uh, so definitely it's a concern. BC Emergency Health Services and the Paramedic Union collectively reworked staffing levels across BC to create more stable coverage in rural and remote communities. Around 90 ambulance stations will be staffed eight hours of every day. The remaining 16 hours covered by what's known as scheduled on-call. So that is a really good thing and improvement in a lot of our really remote and rural communities. It's an upgrade to service. But for some communities, the scheduled on-call will be a reduction in service. Revelstoke, a growing community with dozens of serious calls every month. According to the Revelstoke Review, paramedics responded to 700 calls in 2020, many on Highway 1. And according to the paramedic union, Scheduled on call is the wrong solution here. And when you talk about those serious motor vehicle accidents or community responses, um, we, our feeling generally is that Revelstoke probably warrants a higher, higher um, model in the sense of more full-time. BC Emergency Health Services couldn't do an interview, but in a statement says scheduled on call will create 170 new positions for paramedics. This comes as staffing levels have been increased across B.C. The health minister defending new staffing decisions in question period. Since last fall, we've added 260 plus uh, ambulance paramedics positions and we are posting more than 400 on July the 2nd. B.C. Emergency Health Services says the scheduled on call was rolled out after analyzing the needs of communities. The situation is constantly being monitored and adjustments can be made as needed. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Up ahead, the scooter scandal rocking the Okanagan. Change is needed rapidly. How Kelowna's experiment with urban mobility isn't working out as some had hoped. And one artist's tribute to our healthcare heroes with the broken remnants of the old 7 o'clock salute. If you own a home in B.C., municipal property taxes are due in just over two weeks. As of this year, the province is now managing the homeowner grant program, and some property owners are expressing concerns about the new application process. Consumer Matters reporter Andrea is here with more. Anne? Yeah, we're getting a lot of emails on this one. Thanks, Sophie. In order to ease the burden on municipalities, homeowners must now apply for the grant through the province, either online or by phone. You will need to provide your role and jurisdiction number from your property assessment notice. And the province is also asking for a piece of personal information. The request for the social insurance number is not sitting well with some applicants. The federal government urges private sector organizations to never use the SIN as a piece of identification. So they're curious why the province is using it as a verification measure. One homeowner says he abandoned his grant application process when he learned his social insurance number was required and there was no alternative. He has security concerns and doesn't want to give up the personal information unless the province can explain whether it's legally required.
I don't have a problem with it if I think there's a legal requirement to do so. Uh, provincial government can collect this number if it's for a taxable benefit. This is not a taxable benefit. So I'm just wondering why. You know, security and, and identity theft is very prevalent out there, and we're seeing government websites and private websites being hacked all the time. So uh, my concern is having another database out there that somebody can access personal information on. Now, the B.C. Finance Ministry says while the federal government encourages private sector organizations not to use a social insurance number for identification, it is regularly required by the federal and provincial governments to have access to government programs and benefits. Whenever it is used, it is securely stored within the province's tax administration system. The collection of social insurance numbers helps us prevent fraud, where people claim multiple grants on different properties, as well as ensure that people are paying the right amount of tax. And late today, the ministry clarified that changes made to the Homeowner Grant Amendment Act in 2020 make it a legislative requirement to collect a person's social insurance number. In fact, we are told it's fundamental to BC's and Canada's taxation systems. The ministry also says the practice is fully compliant with privacy legislation and that the taxpayer's data is being handled safely and securely. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks, Anne. It has been more than a month since the city of Kelowna rolled out its e-scooter pilot project. And in that time, it has become one of the city's most controversial issues. Global's Travis Lowe has more on why some are suggesting an overhaul of the program. There are some dark clouds hanging over Kelowna's e-scooter rental program. Messy. Kelowna councillor Brad Sieben, frank about what he feels are the program's numerous failures. I don't think it's it's achieving the goals that we had hoped it might at that, this point. Sieben made that clear at Monday's council meeting where staff brought forward a report on the first 45 days of the pilot project. Currently the way it is, I believe there are far more negatives than there are positives and change is needed rapidly. Sieben says the program isn't meeting its objectives of safety, affordability, and a reduction of car trips. Primarily they're being used as a novelty and not as transportation. He points to bad rider behavior and improperly parked scooters as some of his major concerns. As the e-scooter operators, we all have an obligation to um, provide the education and make sure that everyone knows how to ride the scooter. Because one of the big worries with e-scooters seems to be the number of injuries sustained while riding. So much so that the head of orthopedic surgery at Kelowna General Hospital has been quoted as saying, I think the public needs to know that these things are fracture machines. Kelowna Mayor Colin Bazran echoes some of Sieben's sentiments. We may even look at limiting areas where these scooters can go, uh, or we may actually even consider cancelling the program altogether. Staff is expected to bring back another report to council within two weeks. Travis Lowe, Global News, Kelowna. Up ahead, one developer's billion-dollar real estate play. The plan to renovate thousands of single-family homes into rentals and why some say the deal isn't what it seems also tonight the death of a radio legend what warren barker brought to broadcasting this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos 
you need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A kitten thrown from a moving vehicle has used up one of its nine lives, but it is making a remarkable recovery. This is seven-week-old Ivy. The harrowing ordeal happened in Kelowna. The impact of being thrown from the vehicle was so severe that her tail skin was almost completely removed and one of her femurs was fractured. Despite her injuries, Ivy is expected to have a perfectly normal life once she's fully recovered. But she does require several surgeries. And if you can help, check out the BCSPCA website. She should be available for adoption in about six to eight weeks. Vancouver police are warning people to be wary of jewelry scammers after a man lost thousands of dollars in a con job. The 61-year-old man was walking near Joy Street and Van Ness Avenue Monday afternoon when a man and woman in a white SUV approached. They claimed they needed money to feed their children and to purchase a plane ticket to go home. They traded fake jewelry for $200 in cash and then convinced the victim to withdraw thousands more from the bank and use that money to purchase gift cards, which he then handed over. We're trying to get the word out again to everybody. Um, The best thing that we can do to uh, prevent these crimes is to arm people with the information about how the scammers work and encourage people to be uh, assertive when uh, they're approached and to call us right away when they see a crime like this happening so that we can flood the area with police officers uh, so we can speak to a victim right away get a suspect description get a vehicle description and actually investigate these because once the suspects are gone once they've left the city if a couple of hours have passed it's incredibly hard for us to investigate vancouver police say they're on pace to surpass last year's totals for distraction thefts and jewelry scams There were 40 incidents reported between January and May this year, compared to just 21 the same period last year. A legendary force in BC Radio has passed away. Longtime CKNW news director and broadcaster Warren Barker has died at the age of 92. Barker started at NW in 1952 and led the station's news operation for more than three decades, turning it into a broadcasting powerhouse. He pioneered many of the radio news standards that are still used today, and many of his hires went on to become well-known names themselves. Barker's voice was a familiar one to listeners for decades as he flawlessly delivered the day's news. When you look around at the media in the Vancouver area, whether it's radio or TV, you will find people who have been trained by Warren Barker. He set the standard for journalism and I think he was respected by the, the print media as well. And his uh, success, I think, was because he was a hard worker. He had high standards, but he didn't inflict them upon you. You just knew that if you worked for Warren, you did it right. During his career, Barker won too many awards to list here and was inducted into the Canadian Broadcast Hall of Fame. A Toronto-based condo developer is under fire for its plan to buy $1 billion worth of single-family homes and turn them into rental properties. And while adding supply to the tight rental market sounds like a good idea, Global's Ann Gaviola explains why housing analysts are divided on the benefits of the plan. 
After a blistering start to 2021, Canada's housing market cooled in May, though it remains hot, and the Canadian Real Estate Association still expects this year to be one for the books. Overall, uh, the market remains super hot. A lot of people out there willing to pay really high prices on housing. That's why the timing of Core Development's plan to purchase a billion dollars worth of single-family dwellings and turn them into rentals is facing heavy criticism. The goal, developing 4,000 rental units in BC, Quebec, Atlantic Canada and Ontario, starting with eight cities including Hamilton, London, Kingston, Barrie and Guelph. Core tells Global News there is a significant lack of rental availability in the low-rise single-family market. Increasing density through renovating existing homes is the most expedient way to add supply to the housing stock. Core says it will double the availability of rentals by renovating houses to create a second legal rental unit. Repositioning units. And repositioning units is just another way of saying to making those units more expensive. Uh, and that way they can go back to the investors and say, here it is. We're making a lot of money. Core strategy has been used by big firms in the U.S. They snapped up housing in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis when home prices were depressed. But Core is getting into a market that many describe as unaffordable for first-time homebuyers. Housing analysts are divided on whether or not this billion-dollar plan will increase or decrease future housing prices and rental affordability. But most agree this highlights the need to take a closer look at the impact of treating housing, a place to live, as a commodity. Canada is both trying to attract and retain the best and brightest people. And then the reality is that most people want to own a home. And if we can't afford a home in the city, in this country that we want to live in, well, more and more people are just going to be moving out of Canada. And Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. In Health Matters tonight, a Victoria mother is speaking out and condemning what she says is the lack of resources for special needs children who are becoming adults. Laura Reed says it's been a constant struggle getting her adopted son the service he needs as he ages out of the children's system. Kylie Stanton reports. Are you coming? It's taken three months to get to this point, out of the house and back into the world. He's in crisis. He's gone from everything as far as support to nothing. Laura Reed's son, Michael, turned 19 in early April, effectively aging out of any support for children with autism. This is actually his assessment from Monocross. But despite a year's worth of preparation and paperwork, a lot of paperwork, Reed says navigating the next step has been nothing short of a nightmare. My assumption was that it would just be streamlined and come online. Did that happen? No, it didn't happen. Nothing happened. Reed did what she does best and began advocating for her son, putting in repeated calls and emails to Community Living BC, the organization providing supports for those transitioning into adult care. Well, we're getting to it. We're getting to it. But they weren't. It was only after she went to her MLA, who Reed says went to the minister, that Michael's funding was approved. He was on the back burner. He wasn't considered a priority in their books. They're being allowed to... Excuse the expression, play God with people's children. Because I can guarantee you, if it happened to me, it's happening to others in the province. In a statement, the minister responsible for Community Living BC said, While I cannot comment on individual cases, both government and CLBC are committed to supporting a smooth transition into adulthood for youth with developmental disabilities and their families. What is their adult life going to look like? Jeffrey Ewart with the Garth Homer Society says the most difficult thing about the whole process are the unknowns. With a lot of the families that, that I talk to, uh, I do uh, get a real sense of relief. 
you know, when they see that we're here. We've got uh, the services, the supports that they're looking for, and uh, that they have something to look forward to. Now, Michael, after just a couple of weeks of accessing the supports, is back to focusing on his goals. I would like to be a music producer and make music. Reed shares the ordeal to help other parents facing a similar battle, warning waiting patiently won't pay off. Michael had me fighting for him, and a lot of children don't, and that breaks my heart. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Just ahead, the day that lives in infamy for Vancouverites. It's a surreal feeling in your own city, like you're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Ten years after the Stanley Cup riot, what police will never forget about that night. And a map like no other helping us navigate through thousands of years of Indigenous history. A new map of BC is out and it shows the province in a way many people may not have thought of before. It's called the First Peoples Map and it not only shows the more than 200 First Nations communities across the province, it also offers an education in the unique language, cultural and artistic heritage of each nation. Catherine Urquhart reports. Across British Columbia, there are 204 First Nations communities. Now, this new interactive map allows everyone to learn about their rich cultures, including 34 languages. To be able to uh, click on a website and hear pronunciation of your language, of, um, uh, of greetings, of different phrases, seeing and hearing your language um, means that you're important enough to be there. Click on Squamish Nation, for example, and you can teach yourself how to properly pronounce their name. Released by the First Peoples Cultural Council, maps.fpcc.ca features public art, along with artists like Hannah Michon, who is a graphic designer in Brentwood Bay. There's various ways to search for artists, either keyword or by artistic medium. So there's lots of different ways to explore the map, and there's tons of artwork that you can uh, just see on their portfolios. There's audio, there's videos and biographies about the artists. It's hoped the site will provide a better appreciation yeah. of the many cultures. <laughs> and that's not all. Every public art piece moves towards some reconciliation. It expresses something from artists and something from communities. And I think having those um, in a trusted place online to go and visit and get that perspective is really important. Longer term, this showcase of BC's Indigenous peoples, perhaps just the beginning. Right now we're focusing on BC, but it would be a dream if everyone was able to contribute to the map and really share the diversity of Indigenous cultures and languages and artwork across the nation. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. We've got some learning to do, for sure. We definitely do. Good resource. Yeah. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon is here now. Uh, it looked like a tornado, Christy, but it wasn't. 
Yeah, well, it's what we call here in Canada a water spell when you get a weak tornado or a tornado over water. And let's have a look at this great video coming out of the Caribou region near Lone Butte over Sulphur's Lake. A very well-defined what looks like sort of this rotation. Um, so we would technically call it a water spout here in Canada, uh, but different from a tornado where it comes out of a severe thunderstorm. It, tornadoes typically develop out of the cloud and then extend down. Down to the ground. This one developed near the surface, so it's more sort of developed like a dust devil, you could say. Nonetheless, some great uh, turning um, rotation going on here, and it would be what we would call, say, a weak tornado traveling along the, the water's edge there. Great video. Thanks, Colin, for sharing that with us. Meanwhile, in the lower mainland, we had incredible downpours of rain, but the sun is shining at times, and then there was a lot of dark clouds around the region as well. So a bit of everything today, and we still have some severe thunderstorms storm watches and in fact in the southeastern corner of the province you can see it highlighted in yellow nothing has developed to be severe today but we certainly have had a number of thunderstorms and you can see some just near grand forks sort of uh Suyus area right now everything's going to settle down tonight and overall what we're watching tomorrow is the bc peace river area a rainfall warning in effect for uh, fort nelson fort st john with potentially 50 millimeters of rain for your region May whereas with the rest of the province back to sunshine tomorrow a few areas may see some isolated showers. For the south coast, it would just be mainly through the early morning hours. It will clear quite quickly. And then we're setting ourselves up for a stretch of weather that's going to be fantastic. Thus, I've transitioned to your seven-day forecast to give you an idea of how long that will last. So great weather on the way. We really just need to get through tomorrow morning, basically. A nice sunset shot from Fort St. James. Thank you to Mickey for that one. And yes, uh, thank you to everyone who shares great video and photos. It's uh, really nice to see what's going on around the province. Love is, to see it. That is beautiful. Good job with that photo. Thanks, Christy. All right. There were uh, thousands of photos taken 10 years ago recording something a lot of us would probably rather forget, but we never will. Squire's here to talk a little bit more about the anniversary of the Stanley Cup riot. Well, 10 years ago, about now, the game would have been on, Game 7, which, of course, Boston won 4 nothing. I have to say, I don't think it would have mattered if the Canucks had won 10 nothing. The way some of those people were that night, they were itching to do something. And unfortunately, a small number turned this city aflame. And there is trouble in downtown Vancouver. This is obviously deteriorating, I think, more than they felt that it was going to. Our intelligence actually at the time was that it was going to be a busy game, lots of people, everybody would be excited, but we didn't think we were going to have a riot that night. This was a different animal that night. Uh, a lot of young people, a lot of booze. There was a large enough group that were there just wanting to start something. In hindsight, obviously we didn't have enough people to control it. We had to bring in almost triple what our original deployment was to bring it under control. But we actually had two riots break out simultaneously at Georgia and Hamilton, but we had a second one at Granville and Nelson. But as the VPD's video of that night shows, even with the reinforcements, the number of incidents happening simultaneously were overwhelming. And then there was the issue of hockey spectators suddenly becoming riot spectators. And that, that to me was surreal. Like, uh, you know, I'm saying 
leave, get out of the area, take your kids out of the area. Many were sticking around. Yeah, like it was a show. Like it was a show. But there was one very big benefit of crowds sticking around, and that was all the cell phone video and photos of who was doing what. We had over a million still photos and thousands and thousands of hours of video, and we ended up charging 300 people with about 1,000 criminal offenses. And the rate of convictions for those charged was almost perfect. 98% conviction rate, unheard of. What wasn't unheard of, of course, was a Stanley Cup riot in Vancouver. We had one in 1994, but the two were vastly different. The crowds were about double in 2011 that they were in 1994, but we brought it under control in about half the time that we did in 94. So we were a lot more efficient, and we're even more efficient now than we were then. One of the similarities between 94 and 2011 was the targeting of police cars. Interesting anecdote about that is that the first police car set on fire was Howard Chow's. So I thought my career was pretty much going down the toilet at that point, but as it turns out, it was okay. What did you lose in that car? Oh, I lost a lot of stuff. I think I lost my lunch, I lost all my gear. Um, yeah, I lost a bit of pride. What's not lost on the police are the lessons they learned in 2011 about riots and crowd control. And if the Canucks ever get that far again, a big crowd in a small area will not be a thing. When I look back on that now, that was something that in my current role as chief, like I wouldn't support that now. Like we know that is a problem. I, the idea of having a live site is a good idea. It's a fun idea, big screens, everybody can have a good time and everything. But in hindsight, looking back on it, it's not the best way to manage a crowd. It's too bad a small group spoils it for, for thousands of others who were down there just for a good time. There were a lot of brave people that night, too. No doubt. There, there were. Quite a few. Who got injured, too, and trying yes. to help other people. Yeah, and, and, you know, the police, the ambulance, fire, and then just citizens trying to hold people back. Yeah, it was quite a night. Let's hope the next time we make it to the final. The outcome is different in many, many respects. Uh, my friend Aaron Chapman, the Vancouver historian we've had on a few mm -hmm. times, said one thing about Vancouver, we never ride in the rain. We only ride on a good day. Let's hope for a downpour. So if it's going to be a game seven, let's make sure it's a downpour and then there'll be no more riots. <laughs> uh, BC Lions quarterback Mike Riley says, working out is great, but you can't replicate a game in the gym. Strength is there, the health is there. It's always the stamina, right? Riley and the Lions will be at training camp on July 11th. You'll hear from him and Brian Burnham and an old Lion as well. Also tonight, broken spoons on display. How this art exhibit will stir up memories of the 7 o'clock cheer. It just occurred to me, there has been a riot for a BC Lions Grey Cup win too, hasn't there? There were, I think there, there were been. riots. I think there was a Grey Cup riot. There might have been for the Lions, too. I really wasn't around then. <laughs> okay, good point. Good point. So if I wasn't around, it must not have happened. You're more than just a riot historian to us, Squire. Thank you very much. But we are fair-weather rioters, apparently. Mm -hmm. But maybe that day it was cold. Uh, the uh, CFL made its return from a cryogenic sleep. And uh, they put a schedule out, of course, for 14 games. That was done today, and the BC Lions make that a 14-game season for each team. The BC Lions will start their season on the road to Saskatchewan. That'll be on Friday, August the 6th. Now, the schedule is a lot different than normal, as you would expect. Only one Eastern team is going to visit BC Place. The Lions will not go to Edmonton at all, 
But the Elks, yes, remember, they're the Elks now, will visit here twice. Here is the entire Lions home schedule. In fact, Edmonton in their new logo will show up on August 19th. There you see the one Eastern team will be Ottawa. The always popular Saskatchewan visit on September 24th. Calgary comes twice, and as you can see, Edmonton will come twice, and Winnipeg will come once. Now, BC Lions quarterback Mike Riley and his number one receiver Brian Burnham had a little Zoom press conference today to talk about the upcoming season and all that time in football quarantine. And they were the equivalent of being photobombed on Zoom by former quarterback Travis Lule, who had some questions of his own. I just wanted to check in and see if you gentlemen could what? still know how to talk to the media. Oh I'm curious God. if Brian Burnham has jogged a route in six months or if Mike Riley has thrown a football. That's all. Thanks, guys. Well, I'm still actually, I got to go through a couple more bins in my basement <laughs> to try to find a football. I haven't found it. I'm not sure where I put those things, but uh, you know, we had a lot of house construction, so some things get lost in the shuffle. Mm-hmm. Brian, do you have cleats still? What? Do you own cleats? Like sneakers? No, like cleats like you run on a field with. You used to wear them when you and I played together once. Uh, I've got like sneakers, like trainers. You got those like toe finger shoes that you you wear. Yeah, exactly. That's what I got. That's almost disturbing. Uh, Okay, so game two, Islanders and Lightning, and it's Braden Point. Yes, that is in. Take another look. So that makes it 1-0. Ben Point, after getting the first goal, knocks out Semyon Varlamov. Varlamov has to leave. He would come back in the second period, though, although Point was pushed there into the Islanders' netminder. They would tie the score on a power play goal by Brock Nelson, but Tampa has scored again, and it's 2-1 after 2. And we should update you on this. Canada-Haiti, 0-0 in the first half. If Canada wins or keeps the score this way, they move on to the final stage of World Cup qualifying on the men's side. Speaking of men's soccer, Germany-France at Euro today. Matt Hummels. Well, Matt Hummels won't forget this for all the wrong reasons. Puts it in his own net. Germany scores on itself. France doesn't need any help. They're a great side. Germany does have a chance here to tie it. Serge Gnabry, but it just goes over the bar, and it ends up being a France win, 1-0. The other game today saw Cristiano Ronaldo become the all-time leading scorer in this tournament. He was tied with Michel Platini at nine goals each. No scoring between Portugal and Hungary until late in the game, and it's a lucky goal for Rafael Guerrero as it bounces in off a Hungarian defender. Then Ronaldo adds two to pass Platini and have 11 all-time in this tournament. The first, his 10th all-time, was on the penalty kick, and then he would add one more in extra time. So Portugal wins its opener here. Nice move, 3-0, the final. And Sophie has riot trivia. 1963 and 1966. Grey Cup riots. Yes, so it did happen, in it both did. in Vancouver. Let's not do that anymore. What is with us yeah. in the big sporting events? I mean, the Olympics, we didn't riot. We were yeah, good there. True. It was all just <laughs> high fives and hugs. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, hopefully we won't do it again. That's right. Okay, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll make it final again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We'll... 
Take a short break and uh, turning the tools of the 7 o'clock cheer into art. That's next. Artistic inspiration might not be the first thing you think of when you reflect back on what the pandemic has meant to us. But for one local artist, it began with a tribute to our health care workers and her unique take on it. Jada Rant explains. From the 7 o'clock cheer during the first wave of the pandemic came a unique idea for a local fine art photographer. My daughter broke a spoon, and then my son broke another one, and I broke one, and then my son broke another one. And so an unexpected collection was born. The broken utensils now an exhibit from those early days after Michelle Huseman collected as many as she could. So I met strangers in a park and masked and, and very safe. And it's not just a collection of kitchen utensils, it's a collection of stories with personal connections to each one, like Lori Torlone's spoons that once belonged to a beloved family member. She was um, like a quintessential Italian grandmother, always standing by the stove, always stirring yummy sauces. So I'm just looking at masks that I've collected. You heard that right, now things get very daring. Huseman is making this a series, the next project photographing used masks, and there's still more to come after that. I have a plan to take these masks and create a quilt with them, and once I have enough with that, I think I will stop collecting. <laughs> the printing technique she used is from the 19th century, and it ensures that the quality of these images will remain intact for the next 500 years. The photographs are important to have where they're uh, given as an heirloom onto the next generation and that, uh, you know, that the people will remember how people felt at this time. Enduring images from a period impossible to forget. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique about B.C., email your ideas to jay at thisisbc@globalnews.ca. All right. Lots of good stories coming in, too. We're going to keep him busy for weeks and weeks. Hey, real quick, the Global Family has grown. A quick shout-out to our co-worker Justin Burbage and his wife Rebecca on the birth of their beautiful baby boy. Brendan Arthur Burbage came into this world June 9th at 10.48 a.m., 7 pounds, 5 ounces. Everyone is doing just fine, and we couldn't be happier for them. Congratulations to the family, all the Burbages. Justin's one of our feed coordinators. What are we going to do for six weeks while he's gone? Bonding. Well, good luck. And thanks for watching, everybody. See you tomorrow. Night, all.